Hi, my name is Crystal Trejo-Green. I'm a graduate of the Oxford Said Business School and of Harvard College. After getting my MBA in England, I worked as a global operations manager at Qualtrics. I transitioned from full-time work about a year ago to spend more time with my two young children. I now work as an independent consultant covering data and operations strategy, and I serve on several boards. I first came into contact with the Latter-day Saint MBA Society when my husband and I attended the 2017 conference at Chicago Booth. We listened to successful business leaders talk candidly about how their religious beliefs helped guide them in career decisions. I made connections at that conference that helped to guide my post-MBA career path, and I have attended every annual conference since. The Latter-day Saint MBA Society was founded by a group of MBA students and alumni who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with the hope of bringing together a community of business people striving to bless the world. In this podcast, you'll hear interviews with Latter-day Saint thought leaders that we hope will inspire you both in your professional and spiritual life. For more information about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society, visit latterdaysaintmba.com. And now I'll pass it over to Kurt Frankham, who will host this week's interview. Welcome back to another episode of the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. My name is Kurt Frankham, your host, and today I have the, the privilege of sitting down through the powers of the internet with uh, Daniel Snow. How are you, Dan? Doing great. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. How did you get familiar with the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast? Um, I, uh, I've been a listener and, uh, and, and Bridget was a guest and, uh, we've, uh, in my current role as an MBA program director at BYU, uh, we've sponsored, we've helped sponsor the, uh, LDS MBA uh, meetings uh, periodically, and and uh, I feel a, a certain sort of righteous jealousy. Uh, I want I want to make sure that people out there know about the good things that are going on in our MBA program here at BYU, and also I think uh, MBA education generally is uh, a, a little under attack, and uh, and I'm really passionate about the value of a good MBA education. So I'm I'm excited to be able to get on uh, with you and and tell a little bit of that story. Yeah. And, you know, just looking as we connected through, I think it was originally through LinkedIn and seeing some of your, your uh, professional experience and education, I thought, man, uh, you know, Dan would be a great guest for the podcast. And, uh, so that's where, uh, I <laughs> sent the invitation and, and I'm grateful that you accepted. Um, so maybe just give us a, a brief background of, you know, where you're from and growing up in the church and that type of thing. Thanks. Yeah. It's, uh, it's nice to be here. I, I don't know exactly where to start. I'd say I, I grew up in a sort of normal Latter-day Saint family in, in Colorado, a family that valued education pretty highly. And uh, that might be part of the story later on about my kind of conversion to uh, MBA-dom uh, from, <laughs> from a, a family that really valued science uh, and education and things uh, pretty highly. Um, but but grew up in a a family where uh, BYU was uh, was the the sort of pinnacle. Went to BYU as an undergrad. Uh, I had been planning for most of my undergrad time to uh, go to law school uh, because I I knew lawyers that they looked like they talked about interesting things about <laughs> you know the Constitution and uh, international relations and things and um, and got close at, uh, to the at the end of my undergrad education to. I was getting ready to, to go to law school. In fact, the, the really terrible story is I, I had paid uh, one of the test prep services for LSAT prep, and I went to one of the classes, and, I, and it was there that I had this epiphany that I don't know why it had to be after I spent $1,000 doing that, but I was in that <laughs> class, and I had this epiphany that most of the lawyers I know didn't really like their uh, jobs as lawyers. And I, uh, I was a newlywed. I came home and told uh, my new wife, uh, best friend, Rebecca, that I was maybe having a change of heart about law school. <laughs> and and uh, that was a pretty scary uh, time because I didn't have a really a, a backup plan. And um, and I went back to Princeton Review and said, uh, could I get a refund? And they said, no. I said, uh, can I at least apply the credit to some other test? They said, yeah, sure. You can take the, the MCAT or the GMAT or, uh, you know, or the LSAT or the GRE. I said, well, the GMAT, maybe that sounds good. And, uh, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, sort of, sort of series of events ended up taking that and doing, uh, reasonably well. And, and at that time, this is 25 years ago, got accepted, 
uh, into BYU's MBA program straight out of my uh, undergrad. You can't do yeah. that anymore. And uh, and that kind of started a journey for me uh, into the in, into the business world. I came in the sort of side door, and now it's a big part of 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 who I am. I don't yeah. know. I guess, do you want me to keep, you want me to keep no, going? That's good. That, well, I'm, I'm intrigued by this concept of these these expensive epiphanies that uh, sometimes <laughs> life deals us, right? Because it's like, man, I could have really avoided that cost or, you know, avoided the the headache of trying to transfer those funds. But I think a lot of individuals, as they go through their educational journey or any journey in life, you're just going to come across expensive epiphanies, right? Or, or put you in a place where you suddenly have this realization that maybe you're on the wrong path. And that's just part of the journey, right? So that's a really great observation. And, you know, I think there's, it's expensive in one respect. In another respect, so sometimes we talk about competing risks or competing costs. So you think about what the the cost is of of that epiphany, but there's also a sort of cost that you forewent by not uh, going down the wrong path. So there's the, the, the cost of not finding that out would have been very high. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, and there's this sort of, I think you, you made me think of this sort of principle of action. It's really important to be headed in some direction. Uh, and that seems to be in my life where, where I end up getting these epiphanies or, or, or getting good inspiration, but yeah, you have to be, you have to be investing in some direction before you get that. Yeah. And I, and I would imagine there's people out there who've made it maybe halfway through medical school or, or law school and, and uh, thinking, man, I'm on the wrong path. And that's a really expensive epiphany after all that tuition and things. But, um, you know, sometimes you just have to reset and take it on prayerfully and, and see maybe if there's a different path that feels more uh, inspired. Right. I mean, teaching in an MBA program is one of the best jobs in the world from my perspective, because you're basically every one of your students is in this situation. They've almost by definition uh, graduated from college, gone down a path for two to seven years, um, and then are, are pushing reset in some way. It may be that they're staying in the same industry, but they want to leg up. It may be that they're pushing reset and we want to switch industries and business. It may be that they're a nurse or a lawyer and they're like, you know, I, I've done this for a few years and I and I want to do something else. So by definition, you're, you're dealing with people who have made a courageous kind of step to do a course alteration at a, at a place in life. And it's pretty cool. Yeah. So for, from that experience of just uh, sort of falling into the GMAT test and doing well, is that, were there any other inspirations that uh, pushed you on the path of, of MBA or, or business school? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that there was a, I, I, I started to get, I studied international relations as an undergrad and there was a sort of econ heavy focus at that time. And, and what we didn't call analytics back then, but was, I was doing some sort of analytics stuff as a research assistant for a professor. And I, I think it was then that I started uh, to, to sort of develop this sense that, that a lot of the interesting stuff happening in the world and, um, action happening in the world was being driven by people who were in the economy rather than sort of making policy about the economy mm. or, or, or uh, playing referee uh, on, on, you know, who wronged whom in the economy. And, and that, and that sense, I think really made it feel natural to, to go into my MBA studies. And, and, and then I, I, I really took to it. It was, it was a blast. I, I, I loved the sort of rigor of thought, the way of sort of, taking big, messy problems and trying to put some structure on them. Uh, it's a very sort of positive style of education. It's not, you know, whereas often in so- other social sciences and humanities, you're sort of taking a critical lens on things. In business school, often you're taking a constructive lens. You're saying, you know, there's something going on here. How could we make it better? Um, or, or how could we make sense of it in order to create some value for someone? So I took to that, really loved it. Um, focused on finance and operations uh, as a as an MBA student, got a an internship and then a full time job at Ford Motor Company back in Michigan, working as a financial analyst in the operations part of the business, and then decided to go do a PhD. But I can tell that story, yeah, if you want. But yeah, but so I'm curious. When you started business school, did you always see yourself, you know, working for a corporation or maybe starting a business or, you know, being in the in the field? Or at what point did you realize that maybe you were 
headed towards this academic life? You know, um, there's a long winded professor answer. Um, (laughs) I I grew up with a kid in my neighborhood. He was in my ward, one of the few members uh, of the church that was my age. And, uh, our, our birthdays were really close and we, we were a really nice kid. He knew from the day he was like, from the time he was in third grade, that he wanted to be a neurosurgeon. And, oh, wow. and he grew up, you know, ended up going to Johns Hopkins and he's a neurosurgeon and he's oh, really, you know, wow. yeah, yeah. He's like, he's, he's a great guy. Uh, he, <laughs> he's one of the only people I know who from a really young age just had this very clear idea and then executed on it unchanged. I, I kind of feel like I have just stumbled from, thing to thing in my life, Hmm. trying to, trying to stay close to the spirit and do things that I feel, uh, you know, God is prompting me to do, but, but I, I kind of stumbled into these things. So, um, uh, often I stumbled into things and and I think it was sort of in, in there, in the MBA program, I started to realize, oh, this is, this is something that's really enlightening and fun. And I, and I might actually like, I'm taking to this, but, but I, 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 it was nothing, nothing I planned. And if I understand your story, right, there was not a gap between graduating with your undergrad going mm-hmm. and going to the MBA program, right? That's right. Yeah. I, I okay. mean, I, I did a lot of sort of part-time jobs and research jobs and things like that as an undergrad, but I went straight in. So, and that, and now that's really not typical or really impossible to do, right? I've seen rare cases. Um, but it, but it's, it's almost an act of Congress to make it happen. I mean, when I was, yeah. I was a, had the privilege of being a professor at, at Harvard Business School for a number of years. And and every once in a while, we'd get an applicant that was so spectacular that this would like uh, come up for a faculty vote. Should we let this person in who has no work experience? Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, they've been, uh, an, an, you know, a Navy SEAL, enlisted Navy SEAL, and they just graduated from college at the end of their service, or they mm-hmm. were playing in the NFL and just finished their degree. There's something, you know, magnificent about them that gotcha. will take them right after graduation, but it's, it's yeah. very rare these days. Yeah. And then, so, you know, there was not a, a variety of schools that you were considering when it came to MBA school. It was just sort of the natural next step. You were at BYU and, and on you went to more BYU. That's right. I, uh, uh, I, I stumbled into a fantastic situation and it was, it was the only place I applied. And so what inspired the, uh, to, for you to go back for your, your PhD at UC Berkeley? I really enjoyed my time at Ford. Um, I, I wasn't there for very long, uh, two years and, and, um, they, they treated me very well. The, the work was really interesting. It was really fun to work in a place where I could walk out of my office and go down and see the product that was coming out of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at my desk in Excel and SQL, um, you know, in a theoretical world. And then I could just walk out and see a, a Ford expedition, you know, this physical manifestation of the work come off the end of the line. That, that was super fun. I found that I was, I was really curious about some things that I was seeing, you know, what, why is it, why is text, why does technologies take so long to mature and um, be adopted by companies and and find its way into the economy? Why, uh, you know, do some companies do better than others? And those kind of theoretical questions just ate at me. And and I, I'm curious about mechanisms and and you know how how stuff works in the physical world and in the, in, in the economy. And and I, I've ultimately decided. Uh, to do it. I, when we were living, we chose to live in Ann Arbor when we moved to Michigan and two really important people in my life when we lived in Michigan um, played a role in this. My bishop was a guy named Dave Ulrich, who's um, yeah, he's great. Uh, he's a, a good scholar. Yeah, he's a great guy. And, um, <clears throat> and a guy in our stake presidency was Bob Quinn, who was oh, also yeah. in Dave's uh, department. And and I, I'd have conversations with these guys thinking, man, they're really interesting. They talk about really interesting stuff. And they like, they're a lot like professors that I knew, but they also, um, I hope this is okay to say, like they lived in really nice places. I was like, wow, <laughs> I, I thought that being a professor kind of required a vow of poverty. And, and maybe, maybe there's a place that I could ask interesting questions and, and look at like mechanisms for the world around me and uh, have an opportunity to work with startups and and uh, consult and, and and things like that and and so that's those two guys um, were really sort of helpful both in terms of advice and example 
in getting me to, to apply for for a business school PhD. Yeah, and there's uh, you're one of many people that have been inspired by their work and their yeah. influence. Uh, yeah, that are really making an impact in the world all over. Yeah. So, talk to us about your after graduating. You know, you're with your PhD, you had a really a dynamic uh, career journey everywhere from Harvard to Oxford. Uh, what highlights there uh, that jump out there, and and what what can you teach us about that time? Yeah, you know, I I, um, I was really fortunate to get that the the. the I, I was at Berkeley for five years. It took five years to do my PhD and was really fortunate. Uh, I, uh, as I was graduating, you know, sent out 40 or 50, uh, what we call job packets, uh, to different schools. Some didn't even answer me. Some said, come and interview, uh, had a really good experience interviewing at a few places and, and HBS, uh, had a really great experience interviewing there, hit it off with some folks that I ended up doing research with and working with and, um, and, and was hired and, and, and we moved there. Um, it was, it was, a it, you know, if there's a principle, I, I talk about this sometimes with MBA students in my classes, they're thinking about jobs. Um, I, I really, I hope this doesn't offend you or any of your listeners. I really hate the word networking <laughs> because yeah. it feels, uh, instrumental and manipulative. Like I'm mm. making friends with, it's not, when it's done right. But I worry sometimes that it feels like I'm making friends with someone with the explicit purpose of extracting some value from them down the road. Right. And I don't like that at all. Um, I can trace most good things in my, most good things that have happened, whether it's in my personal life or my uh, career to sort of being my best self at some critical juncture. And when I was on the, I was on the job market, I went to the Academy of Management meetings uh, and I went to some seminars at, at different places and, and I, you know, happened to bump into folks that were working at, at good schools and had really good conversations about research. And that, um, uh, the, none of them, uh, were the, the LDS folks at, at HBS at the time. These are folks that ended up being really you know, lifelong friends. I, I tell students, you know, you, you can very often trace back good things that happen to you. Uh, to you being in a good place at a good time that you couldn't have sort of predicted, you couldn't have manipulated if you'd wanted to, but you were being your best self, being honest, being productive, being forthright, being a good person. And, um, and that just kind of happened. I, I, as, as I said, ended up at HBS, uh, taught there for uh, six years. And around the time that we were uh, thinking about kids uh, what was going on in our kids' lives, uh, thinking about what was going on uh, in in uh, in my research, uh, BYU reached out to me and they had two the the two sort of folks teaching operations to their MBA students retired that same year, uh, Bill Juke and Bill Sawaya, the two Bills, and they asked if I might be interested in applying for a job to come come and uh, fill in teaching for them in the MBA program and. And Rebecca and I thought about it, and we both have a ton of fondness for this place, for the role it played in our lives as young people, and and wanted to be part of building, helping sort of build this place. It's a, it's a fantastic place with fantastic colleagues, but it just felt like a good thing to do. And we punched out, moved away from Belmont, Massachusetts, moved back here to uh, Provo, and and had a really fantastic time. Awesome. Uh, I want to jump into our the principles that you, you sent me here, yeah. but uh, anything else about your journey that uh, I'm, I'm sure some of it will come up in these principles, but anything else about your journey that we haven't hit on that would be helpful in putting everything into context? I, you know, the, the, I, we could talk later about going to Oxford for a couple of years, but I, I, I think that I got into a cadence in like a elementary school and then high school and grad school. I, I kind of get anxious if I'm doing the same thing for more than five or 10 years. And I think, Sometimes it feels like it's time to look for a, a new adventure. And, and I think you might be able to sort of look at some of the things that like I, I, I want to be moving forward and and doing things differently and, uh, and, and periodically shaking things up, self-disrupting, whatever you want to sort of yeah. call it. But, yeah, that's yeah. an interesting concept. And I'm curious if there's more you could say to that as far as, you know, I, obviously the the world's changed since the time that our parents were, you know, working, right. My dad had pretty much had the same job for several decades. And there is anything you'd say it is like, what should we consider? What, what should a professional consider as they've been 
maybe at a company for a few years and they sort of feel like, you know, this is great. I got, I'm, I'm advancing, but maybe it's not as challenging as other past experiences. I mean, this is a deep question that I think about all the time with our students and MBA students I see elsewhere. You know, what is, what's the source of drive to shake things up? Um, and, and I, I think that there are situations we get into in life where we're really comfortable and, and it's not worth disrupting. It's not worth shaking up. And certainly there's family context stuff that happens where shaking up isn't good. I, I try to coach our MBA students into taking that approach. Um, you know, the structure of, of leadership in the church, you know, there, there isn't a church assignment that I can think of off the top of my head that lasts longer than five years um, you know, that we, 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 t- maybe nine years for a stake presence. Sure. Yeah. Kind of like, uh, I, I think that there might be some principle, some eternal principle of rotation and putting yourself in a situation where you feel like a freshman every few years and f- you feel dumb. And by the time you're not feeling dumb, it might be time to, to disrupt yourself. Otherwise you're not progressing. I, yeah. I think there's something to that. Yeah. And it, I mean, do you feel like as you, you know, interview at different opportunities. I don't know. There's this natural feeling of you want to communicate that, oh yeah, I'll probably be here forever. I mean, I just love this opportunity and I can see, you know, like, is there, is there a way to sort of, you know, communicate to those you work with that, Hey, this is sort of a season of my life and it may not last forever, but while I'm here, I'd love to contribute. Yeah. I think you can do that. I I don't know. I I don't actually know what the right answer is to that. My, My personal take on this is Every step I've done sort of like this, you know, whether it was moving, you know, whether it was thinking about law school or was thinking about taking a, a, a job in Michigan or moving to Boston or moving to Provo or moving to England or whatever, I, I've, Rebecca and I have always taken the orientation that this is it. Like we're, 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 we're doing it. And then you kind of buckle in and serve in your ward. You meet, you meet your neighbors you you're investing for the future with your colleagues at work. And, you know, it just so happens that sometime, maybe one of these days, maybe, maybe now for me is the place where I stay right for good. Mm-hmm. That's the way I'm living right now. So I, I think you, I think you kind of should live in a way that you're really investing as you know, you're planting fruit trees figuratively in your, in your life and your job. Like I'm going to be here for the next 30 years. And, but if something different comes up and you feel good about it, it takes a yeah. certain kind of partner and ecosystem around you to pull that off because not everybody's comfortable with that. And so <laughs> yeah, my, some, my, some people want the house that they they live yeah. in for a while. And yeah, you can jump around from companies as long as it's in the valley, you know, that's like right. that's right. <laughs> and I happen to we happen to both of us have a have a kind of a, a thirst to to experience new things. And yeah, that's been good, but it yeah. doesn't work for everybody. And it sounds like it, with these different transitions you went through, it wasn't that you had some timetable that you knew, you know, in two years, I'll probably be gone or whatever, but it was sort of like a couple opportunities come up or one or two and, and That's you it. apply and you, you pray about it and things, you know, I think this is a time to move on. I, I'm yes, that's exactly, you've nailed it. And I'm self-conscious that maybe that's the wrong way to live, but it, 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 it works in, in my little like neck of the woods in my experience, but I'm sure there's a more intentional way to, yeah, and, and planning and planned way to live. It can be stressful, actually. So yeah, I bet. Yeah. Well, let's jump into the, some of these uh, principles as we do yeah. on these episodes. I, I had you send me uh, three or four principles that have sort of guided you that you found helpful in your uh, professional journey and and uh, and especially your journey in relation to MBA school. Uh, so let's jump into these. First one is management is a higher calling. So I, I think um, there, there are a couple ways to, to illustrate this principle or, or sort of tell this story. And, and you know, the, the most effective one I, I've heard is, is one that isn't mine. I have a little tangential connection to it. And that's the way Clay Christensen told this story in, in How You Measure Your Life. And he, he tells a story about being at a company picnic of the company he's the CEO of. Um, and, and he's, and he's, as I recall the story, um, watching uh, one of one of his employees is, uh, uh, I think, a head of engineering, and she's playing with her kids, and he has this sort of epiphany that the way she experiences life while she's at work um, in in the organization that he's running 
is going to massively influence the way she treats her kids and she lives her life sort of outside of work. We spend more time at work than we do in pretty much any other activity. Yeah. Even sleeping. And I think that, you know, so he articulates this insight that his influence is multiplied not just in the organization where he's working and the products it's making, but in the lives of the employees that he's that he's working with and the, the culture that he creates and the the situations they live in at work are, are incredibly impactful in their lives. And, you know, there are lots of ways to sort of tell this the story of why management is, is, is has a huge impact, whether it's, you know, the the artifacts we use in our day to day lives, you know, an iPhone or a or a, a car or a. Uh, or, 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 you know, or, or family search or, you know, whatever it is, those, those are things that make a big impact in people's lives and, you know, really fundamentally alter the way they live, but also the way we do work has a big impact. And, and that comes down to how managers treat their people, the organizations they create uh, and how they do stuff. I, I didn't realize this growing up, you know, so my, I like to tell the story that my, my dad's a nuclear physicist. My mom, uh, did a master's in math. They met in an ordinary differential equations class at BYU. <laughs> oh, and wow. so I, yeah, the, so I grew up in this uh, family. I'm cringing if they, they'll hear this, but all of us kids that grew up in this family agree that somehow we absorbed the worldview that business was kind of what you did if maybe you couldn't make it as a nuclear physicist or as a <laughs> surgeon or as a public school teacher right. or as a lawyer. Yeah. And, um, and they, they say they deny that completely now. And they, 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 they never said that to us explicitly, but I think right. there was this sort of sense that maybe management was this thing was about money, but not so much about doing good in the world. And hmm. I've, I've completely changed my worldview now. And I get to live in this sort of intersection of, of kind of the intellectual world and the money world, the business world. And I get to see what, what good things our, our graduates go do. I also get to go see, I see bad things that people do this, this sort of, you know, leverage that, that, that we have on, on management out there. Bad managers can make the world a worse place and good managers can make the world a better place. And, and, yeah. and I, but that's something I came by in adulthood. I didn't realize that as a kid. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. And I'm just uh, reflecting back to my time in business school where it seemed like Every, like in the context of whatever class we were in, every case study that came up, it was always from, or typically from the perspective of the CEO, you know, the guy that's running the business. And there's almost this feeling within, you know, professional business life that, you know, being a middle manager or for those who could, couldn't rise to the ranks of CEO and, and everybody in there sort of knew that at some point, if they, you know, they were, they were aiming for CEO rather than, you know, some you know, district manager, or whatnot, but to really see that even in those middle manager positions, or even when you're at Ford, not running the company per se, but you're still having an influence on a department, there's a higher, you know, there's a, a higher calling there that you can pursue because you're not just trying to move the bottom line, but you're really trying to impact the quality of life of those people that you are managing and that you are, that you are leading. Yeah, that's that's really insightful observation. Um, the best managers I've known, even if they're not CEOs, are the people that really pay a lot of attention to this, you know, curating the 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 greenhouse that they've that they have stewardship over right now. And and that has, you know, it's not all touchy feely. There's financial aspects to that. There's strategic aspects to it. There's you know frameworks and rigor that you bring to this. But the the good managers I know are the ones that that take this really seriously in the sphere in which they've been placed. Uh, and, 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 you know, the pattern generally is, and this is not always true, but it's generally that, that people that do that well and take that seriously uh, uh, rise in, in yeah. organizations uh, because that's what organizations value. Yeah. And, 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 and organization the bottom line, like, go ahead. Yeah. And the bottom line takes care of itself, right? Yeah. Uh, or, or if, and if you're a part of an organization that doesn't value that, that's, you know, uh, uh, predatory or in some other way, uh, sort of dysfunctional, yeah, then you leave like, uh, you know, y your dad and my dad probably didn't, uh, they worked at the same place for years, right. but, but now we're, we're a little bit more portable and people can go work in a different place if, if they feel like that's not being rewarded.
Yeah. And what I love about this principle is not only do you add quality to the life of those that, that work with you, but it infuses your own life with purpose and quality because you have a higher purpose of showing up at the office every day. Right. There's, I agree. You know, my observation over the years is that not surprisingly, different people are wired different ways and have different preferences. And, you know, for some people, making a lot of money and having a, a, a Porsche is like, that's, that's it. That's the goal. Most of the folks that I find really interesting and most of the folks that we see coming through our MBA program here or going through actually top programs at other places have some goal outside of that. They, they want to make some positive impact or they want to, they've got an idea of something that's going to, you know, uh, revolutionize the way people do things like that. That higher thing is a really important thing for most people that I've seen at this sort of altitude of business. Yeah. And so how does this principle look like in, in practice as far as the day-to-day? I mean, are there certain routines or books or approaches to making sure that you're you're not, you know, falling into the trap of just looking at the spreadsheet or, you know, the, but you're actually bringing quality and, and seeing your management role as a higher calling? Yeah, you know, um, I think there's certainly a spiritual aspect to it that we are, are a lot more comfortable talking about it at at uh, BYU than you might be able to be at, at some other place. You know, I mentioned Clay Christensen, uh, rest his soul, good, uh, good friend. You know, Clay really did this a lot in a non-religious environment. He was very good at articulating his spiritual values um, and what motivated him to, to, to people that may not have shared his, his faith directly. And, and I, so I think that there's a way to think about this challenge if, even if you're not a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you can you you, you can do this. And 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 whether this is sort of uh, something that infects your personal prayers and and your your sort of pondering over what you're going to be doing with your life, or or help something that influences the way you're making decisions. You know, should I take job A or job B? Job A um, is is in a kind of comfortable setting for me in terms of like culture, uh, B is going to be a setting where I may have to do a lot more explaining of like who I am and who my values are. Um, that B is pretty attractive and interesting. If you think part of your job is to be a, a light and a good influence in the world. Um, so that, I think that that sort of idea that management is a higher calling can permeate a lot of decisions. We may talk a little bit later about kind of study in the classroom, like how, how an MBA program actually works. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to sort of push us there yet, but, but I do think that, that if, if your, if your perspective is I'm here for two years, not just to get a diploma and a network and a, uh, you know, a, a name, uh, but <clears throat> I'm here to like build some tools that are going to help me go make a positive impact in the world. It, it, it really changes the way, I've seen students approach their MBA studies. Um, mm. that, that's that's a that's an it it can't help but infect the way you live your daily life if that's if you're viewing this as a higher calling. Next principle you put is, and this is you mentioned alluded to this earlier as far as uh, maybe some criticism about MBA programs, but the the MBA when done right continues to be a highly valued degree. Yeah, so you know it's an, it's a. It, it's an interesting job to have right now. So I'm, I'm director of a, of a world-class MBA program. We're top 25. We aspire to do better at all the things we're doing. <clears throat> but I, I get to be part of a team where I'm kind of a CEO of, a, of an organization in an industry that's in a lot of flux. So there's, um, and, and there, it's under flux because it's under attack from a number of different directions uh, whether it's sort of different business models uh, or, or or sort of competing technologies. So, you know, some of the things that people say these days about MBAs are it's not really worthwhile because um, companies have learned that, that they ought to just develop their own good people with their own internal uh, uh, kind of education function. So, you, you know, Google University or Goldman Sachs kind of continuing education or or whatever, they identify great talent and try to retain them rather than say, you know, leave us for two years, we might get you back. 
Um, so, so that has actually become in some ways a substitute for an MBA, that, that internal company uh, ed- education thing. There's also the sort of unbundled, uh, uh, you know, MIT, YouTube, or, you know, very inexpensive or free stackable kind of thing where, you know, we get fantastic students applying for MBA program and on their resume or on their LinkedIn, it's like, you know, I got this certification from Cornell on this negotiations thing, or I got a certification from MIT on supply chain or whatever it is. These are cool things. They're valuable. So you got that going. That's a kind of a technological substitute for the clunky old bricks and mortar, uh, in-person, you know, costly MBA. Um, you also have specialized master's degrees, like master's of financial engineering or master's of HR or master's of marketing or master's of science in supply chain management, like the, lots of alternatives like that. So the, the, the narrative that is out there with some, oh, and by the way, there are two other really interesting things that are going on in this industry, like, like dynamics um, that have happened because of the kind of political situation. Um, one is many schools in the top 50, top, top, I'm talking about MBA programs, have treated the MBA program, used to like five or 10 years ago, <clears throat> treated MBA programs as a cash cow. So you could um, you could sort of hang out your shingle, say we're going to take 300, 400 people a year. A huge chunk of those would be uh, international students who are cash buyers. So if you're you know running, I'm not going to say a name, but you know, top 25 MBA program, uh, you, you'd, you'd fill half your class with c- people putting cash on the counter coming from India or China, really bright, awesome people. Um, and, uh, it, it those hard, the people are hard to place in jobs in the U S because they got to get sponsorship and stuff like that. And if you don't feel an obligation to place them, that's fine. You can just take their money and they take their name and diploma and go off and figure it out. B- BYU, we, we have this pretty strong sense that we have an obligation to help folks with placement and make sure there's a, a real landing spot for people when they graduate. So we're, we're really careful about uh, uh, managing that whole thing. So what happened was uh, sort of economy started to change. Uh, uh, visa stuff got, a, got a, a quite a bit more difficult. Uh, uh, with the last administration. And so you had people that had been going to U.S. schools suddenly saying, not only is the visa harder, but I'm reading stuff about what's going on in the U.S. I'm kind of worried about, you know, this isn't true, but they're like, if I get off the plane from India, am I going to be like attacked by somebody? We heard this from students that were thinking of applying to MBA programs. Like, no, America's safe. It's just fine. But this was, so, but at the margin, that person was like, maybe I'll go to INSEAD in France or Singapore, or I'll go to, you know, IMD in Switzerland or to uh, uh, LBS in London or something like that. So you saw a, a pretty big uh, a decrease in the, in the number of international students in the U.S. So cash coming in goes down. A bright students, uh, a bunch of bright students coming uh, uh, coming into programs goes down. Um, you start to have a little bit of a battle over really bright students uh, that are kind of remaining wanting to go to these schools. So, 15 years ago, you know, if you got a 700 on the GMAT, you were like, we we were uh, lots of schools were like, yeah, we, we'd like to have you here today. If you get a 700 on GMAT, there are a number of schools that will not only pay you a, a, a your tuition, but maybe give you a stipend to go there. And these are really great schools. So the economics in the industry have changed. At the same time, you've got these uh, specialized uh, master's degrees siphoning off students. So um, the dynamics in the industry have have actually forced a couple of uh, MBA programs out of business. There have been a couple of business schools that have killed their MBA programs or put them on put them on ice for a few years, and they're mm-hmm. waiting out the economy. And then, and then COVID just further shook this up. So yeah. all of that is to say. We're, many MBA programs are trying to figure out what is the right business model. Should they hyper-specialize? Should they focus on analytics? Should they, um, you, you know, d- do online and allow people to keep their day jobs? There's a, a lot of experimentation with models. And, um, you know, my belief is that in the very, and this is based on my experience in, in really fantastic programs. I've, I've had the privilege to teach in some great places, 
at the, the best schools, what happens is students may not show up wanting this. Many of them do, but, but, but by the end of the program at a top school, students realize that what they've paid for is a, is a transformation of who, of who they are and what their, what their place is in the economy. And, um, and that's a, that's a, that's not a recipe, right? So that's not a, uh, a lot of students show up saying, especially if they're from a like more technical field, they're like, just give me a problem set. You know, I, I did this in mechanical engineering as an undergrad. I, I just show me what I need to work through on a problem set. That's the recipe for doing well in, in business. That's actually not what a good MBA program does. What a good MBA program does is it equips you with heuristics or ways of approaching problems so that by the end of a program, you've burned in some new neural pathways. You, you've changed the way you approach the world. And, and that transformation doesn't really happen very well with lots of these other kinds of models that are out there. It really, the, the, the old-fashioned model of you sit down in a classroom, there's some adrenaline because it's a little bit scary. And I open up and I say, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Frankum, uh, tell us about what the case is about today. And you do that for five minutes and I kind of push you until you run out of steam. And then we get somebody to debate you on a point. And this is, turns out to be really great training for being a team leader or being in a boardroom. And it's hard to do that training with a, just, you know, a zoom, you know, broadcast or something like that. Yeah. Or watching a, you know, a few, pre-recorded videos or yeah. whatever it is, right? Yeah. And, and those places, those things have their role, but I think for a really well-rounded MBA program, the, the well-executed MBA program that's turning out that kind of MBA student, there's a huge need for that in the economy. And I don't actually don't think that's going away. Maybe yeah. I have my head in the sand about disruption, yeah. but I'm, I, I, I'm pretty convinced about this. Right. And, you know, you're talking about these different forces that are sort of debating whether MBA is the right path or even a, a reasonable path for anybody they're usually talking from a perspective of MBA school is all about knowledge that you receive and look at all these other places that you can get similar knowledge, right? But really it's a transformational experience. At least, you know, that's maybe what the good MBA programs are trying to, trying to create. I, I totally agree. I, you know, I think it's interesting if you re rewind back like two years and you asked everyone to predict, <clears throat> let's say we have a pandemic that forces everybody into online education What's going to be the outcome? And I think a lot of folks would have said, this is going to be the nail in the coffin of old-fashioned bricks and mortar, in-person, flesh and blood uh, uh, education. A lot of people are still saying this. Mm -hmm. From where I sit, talking to my colleagues at across this university and other universities, this has taught a lot of people that um, there are some really significant limitations to online that we thought we thought online was this the next big thing. It turns out it's pretty nuanced. It may be the next yeah. big thing for some things, but boy, it's, it sure is terrible for some other kinds of things. And yeah. uh, and 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 that gives me some, I think, some ammunition to kind of move forward in the direction we're moving. Yeah. So obviously, you know, you work for BYU and you run the MBA program there. So I, I'm, I don't, oh, maybe you're too biased to answer this question, but when yeah. somebody's considering, you know, MBA school, how can they make sure they're going into a school that will give them a transformational experience? So I'll, I'll sort of assume that everybody wants that. Not everybody does. I think sometimes people kind of pick it up accidentally along the way uh -huh. when they realize that that's kind of what you need to do in order to, you know, really thrive at a top tier company or whatever you, you need to pick. It up. So let's assume that everybody wants that transformation. How do you figure that out? Um, that's a great question. Cause I actually don't know if I've, uh, I've, I've never thought about it exactly in those terms. I think the advice I would give to a, you know, niece or a nephew who's in this situation is I'd, I'd say, go, go talk to people who've gone through that program. Those that's generally the best, uh, sort of source of information. Go ask somebody who's been through a program, what did it do for you? And if you find them saying, you know, it was pretty good. I it's probably worth it. I penciled out. It's, you know, it's, there's going to be a 10 year payoff period for this. And, and I, and I met some good folks that, you know, th good. Uh, you're going to talk to folks that went to other places. They'll say, when I have a crisis, the first 10 people I'm going to text are the people from my study group in my first year of MBA. These, Three professors completely changed the way I think about the world. 
I worked in a group project in an experiential learning kind of program in my school that um, gave me, uh, you know, equipped me with some tools I didn't have before. Um, you know, I, I want something different from what I want. If they say that, that's a pretty good sort of litmus test. I also think looking at, at sort of placement. One of the things I think I, I, I caution people about when they're thinking about a pure online MBA degree, and, and it's the right fit for some people, um, but I, I encourage people to really dig deeply and look at the at the placement or earnings improvement numbers. Those are kind of hard to find with some MBA programs, but you ought to really look closely at, you know, we, we, we just figured out this, our last, I'm being a homer here, but our, our graduating cohort in our MBA program, uh, we're at 96% placement three months after graduation. I'm really proud of that. Um, mm. And, and, uh, but, but that's not true for every, not every school can, can sort of claim that. And I think that that's worth doing your due diligence before really investing in an MBA program to, to poke hard at that number and figure out what placement and, and earnings improvement looks like at that place. Yeah. And there, are there on the other side of the coin, are there any other, any red flags, you know, maybe 100% zoom meeting classes or I, I don't know any, yeah, any I mean, red flags. I don't, want to pick, I don't want to pick too much on that because I, I want, I'm conscious of the fact that there are some really great models people are experimenting with. And some, yeah. some of those may be really worthwhile and cool. You know, I, I'm like the Mark Twain, I'll paraphrase when he said he wouldn't want to be a member of any club that would have him, uh, something <laughs> like that. And I kind of feel like if I were applying to an MBA program that was begging me to come uh, without interviewing me, really thoroughly and was offering mm-hmm. me, I'd, I'd be a little bit worried about that. I, I'd want to, I'd want to gain entry into a place that just barely let me in. So that yeah. means I get into the best program I could get into. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's really helpful. Awesome. Uh, anything else around, you know, the, the high value of, of an MBA degree? No, yeah, I guess, you know, one more thing I'd say is, um, there are a lot of really fantastic technicians in the world people that are really great at, at programming, people that are really great at calculating, uh, you know, financials, people who are really great at, um, you know, executing in their job, doing, doing what they're supposed to do. To do. My view, as, as I talk with recruiters, I talk to friends that are out there, I, you know, I serve on a couple of boards, I, I consult with, with folks that are, that are starting companies up is, the, one of the really significant sort of scarce resources out there is, is leadership. The notion that there's someone who can come and plug into an organization and lead an effort and kind of fundamentally alter the trajectory of the organization and change the way people feel about working there, change the wisdom with which they're making product decisions like that, that all comes down to good leadership. And th- that's a scarce resource. That's, th- there are lots of things out there that are not scarce resources. In fact, there are things that I think AI is going to replace in the coming years that we think of as skills, but I don't see AI replacing leadership uh, as easily as I see it replacing some other kinds of technical competency. Yeah. All right. Next principle is uh, the old technology of in-person education is the right model for MBA education. Uh, maybe we've we've already touched on this, but anything else around that topic? Yeah. So my, uh, my my dissertation research, going way back to UC Berkeley, was on um, something called the the sailing ship effect, or I, I started calling this the last gasp of old technologies. So the 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 story is that when steam ships uh, showed up on the scene, um, you you might expect that sailing ships were replaced really quickly uh, because steam is this, uh, you know, superior technology in so many ways. But in fact, there's a big crossover period and and sailing ships survived a lot longer than you might suppose. And, And the interesting thing is that the trajectory of performance improvement in sailing ships actually increased after the arrival of steam. So the, and, and this sort of led me into this field where I look at, at um, technology transitions and, and how new technologies replace old technologies. And I, and I have this sort of maybe a little bit contrarian view that most of the world actually runs on old technologies. In fact, the disruption that we talk about so often is, is actually notable because it's kind of exceptional. 
I grew up hearing stories, you know, going again back to my geek dad of there's this really amazing material that's going to replace silicon chips. It's gallium arsenide is going to replace. This was like 35, 40 years ago. Uh, we're going to replace silicon chips because silicon's like the old stuff. We're, well, you and I are still talking on devices that are using uh, silicon chips. Turns out silicon's actually a really great material technology. And every time we think it's going to get replaced, um, engineers at semiconductor companies come up with ways to dope the silicon or do other things with it. Uh, you know, play with the the etching technology or or uh, photolithography technology that that actually raises the performance of this whole technology. That's actually the story of most of, from my perspective, most of the economy and most of the world. My belief is that there's something about our wiring as social mammals that is deep deep inside of us that uh, favors the use of narrative and in-person interaction to foster learning. You know, depending on what your sort of view is about uh, where this started in history or prehistory, you know, this is my view on, uh, you know, the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is this uh, place where, you know, God interacts with Adam and Eve face-to-face in this sort of pedagogical Mm. uh, situation. And this this is this sort of the tradition of, training via sort of oral uh, 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 passing along of, of ideas and then pu- push and pull and give and take and probe the limits of ideas. Like th- that's, that's deep in, in who we are. And, you know, maybe at some point Jeff Bezos or, uh, you know, uh, 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 Eric Cook is going to come up with a way to implant something in our head that, bypasses the need to do that <laughs> yeah but we're we're this is the way we effectively learn I, I i think in my experience so so the the idea that um if what we're training for is not purely technical competency where you can uh, transmit information test on competency give a stamp of approval and move on that 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 is uh that is something that we need to do in some areas of of universities but a big part of what we do in MBA education is, is, is educate for judgment. We're trying to give people ways of approaching problems. And for whatever reason, it, in my experience, if I can get you, Kurt, into an MBA classroom and push you on your thinking on, you know, Amazon is trying to figure out how they should, you know, whether they should build their own fleet of air cargo planes or continue to outsource this to FedEx and DHL. And let's really push at this. And you've got some adrenaline going because you've got 60 people that are in your future network that you're, you respect and you're trying to like work this out. And somebody pokes you and says, Hey, Kurt, I like your point, but actually you overlooked this. And then somebody from the side says, the way I can synthesize what Kurt and Julie said was, is that this kind of frame... That turns out to be a really powerful way to learn, and and I don't I don't know the neuroscience behind this. I suspect that there's something about being on the spot, adrenaline flowing, having to come up with a, a synthesizing something on the fly that just burns this into your neural pathways in a really mm-hmm. deep way. Yeah, that just reading a textbook doesn't do. So right. so I think that this 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 way of educating is kind of ingrained in who we are. And I, and I think that whatever replaces what we're doing is going to have to honor that biology. And I, and I don't, I don't see the replacement right now. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and that's helpful. I, I can imagine for an individual who's maybe, you know, considering MBA school and they're coming across all these unique uh, attempts to disrupt the model, the old model to say, wow, you know, look at this. I don't even have to go anywhere or I can, yeah. uh, have a study group from people across the world. Isn't that great? I'll have that diversity of thought. But at the end of the day, there's some of these nuanced components of just the traditional old model that that really we're not at a point to replace that or do something better. And so you have to lean into that and realize there's great value or there's these things happening behind the scenes intellectually or, you know, neurologically that simply can't be replaced by, by some of these disruptive models. I have a, 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 a good friend and colleague, Nathan Furr, who's a professor at NCIAD, uh, was a BYU undergrad, r- really great guy. And um, 
in, in our paper, we talk about the, the fact that this old technology often is not a static target for the new technology. In other words, these sailing ships actually end up doing, the, the sailing ship manufacturers and users end up doing some really cool things to these sailing ships toward the ends of their lives that are so powerful that they improve the performance of the sailing ship. And in, and in many cases, not the sailing ship, but in, in other technologies, improve it so much that it kills the, the threat of disruption from this mm. new technology. And, and I see this happening in our kind of old fashioned model of MBA where, you know, so you, you bring up a really fantastic sort of example of kind of broadening our exposure. So, you know, one of the things that we're, we're working on here at BYU is how do we get our students working in, in teams with, uh, you know, people that are really different from them or working on projects that are in parts of the world that they've never been to. And, and, um, that's us with the old technology doing some things that are that actually improves the old technology. And, and so it, it's a, it is a really kind of a wide open landscape right now that I think a potential student has to sift through. And this isn't to say that there aren't some really great solutions out there with these new models, but, it, but it, it, there is a, a really wide variety of models that I think people yeah. have to choose from now. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's no, I don't think there's a, a villain in this, in this fight here that, you know, the, both of the the old school and the new school, they sort of help each other, help the old school, maybe see some limiting factors and do and improve on them. Right. And yeah. And that may win in the end. So I mostly agree. I think there are villains. I think there are villains out there <laughs> are people that take money from yeah, yeah, students yeah. and, um, and don't think carefully about this stuff. Right. And there yeah, are a few, and mostly that's my colleagues in the academy aren't that, but, but it does happen from time to time. And yeah, yeah that's, you got to keep your eye out for those for sure. Yeah. Just, just give us a perspective from, uh, you know, the, the BYU MBA program. I mean, there's, there's various, uh, benefits, uh, you know, you've talked about yeah. some of the, those, the transformation, transformational nature, and also, uh, you know, for Latter-day Saints, it could be a, a less expensive option. So, and maybe just give us an overview of the, of BYU MBA misconceptions about it or anything like that. It's funny you bring up cost. Um, <laughs> it's one of my pet peeves. Okay, so, sorry. Uh, about that. No, 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 no. <laughs> Let's I'm address like, it. Let's really take it. I'm really upset with you right now. Um, <laughs> no, I, I said uh, at a graduation speech uh, uh, last year, I think, for MBA students, I said, if I ever hear any of you say, yeah, uh, my MBA at BYU was really good because it was so inexpensive. I said, I'm going to come and find you and punch you in the nose. Because um, my view is that we have a world-class program. And if we were to somehow get approval from the board of trustees to charge three times what we're charging, our, uh, many of our students would value it more highly. Yeah, uh, yeah. MBAs are expensive degrees at, at nearly every place there is. And I think part of the perception of value often with, you know, consumer products comes from how much people spend on them. Um, so, so I like to articulate the, the value proposition of the BYU MBA in a long paragraph that doesn't include anything about the cost. And then I call out at the end of the paragraph, Hey, uh, I just want you to recognize I didn't say anything about cost. I, et cetera. So our, our aspiration is to train, uh, men and women of faith who are going to go make a positive difference in the world, uh, through their work lives and through their contributions to their communities, and um, and and it's a it's a special subset of uh, of, of the population that that wants to come to BYU. We have every year somewhere around so, somewhere between two and seven percent of our entering class will be uh, non-members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, and typically those are people who really feel a lot of sympathy with, with our values. They want to be studying in an environment where people aren't getting drunk a lot, uh, where people are talking about ethics in a really open and vulnerable way that includes their faith. Um, th that kind of person likes to come. But we get people who want to make a transformation in their lives. I, I'd say every year in every class, and this year is no exception, we have students that were accepted at uh, Stanford or Harvard uh, and chose to come here. We don't win that fight all the time. Very often, it, it's the right thing for somebody to go to one of those schools if, if they've been accepted here and there. But we get we get a really top-notch group of students who, who come through this program. 
the way we articulate our model won't won't be very surprising to you, given what we've talked to uh, talked about up till now. But our model is the kind of student who comes here wants to build a foundation of build a business acumen, uh, analytical capability, um, faith and ethics. These are these are what I think of as order qualifiers. They're what you you need to have. Any MBA needs to have. And on top of that, we are really intentionally building these some of these skills uh, uh, and capabilities that that you and I have talked about already. Um, making sense of big messy problems that span different multiple disciplines. Leading teams once you've identified the problem or the you know crux of this issue in this messy environment and doing so innovatively, doing, doing things creatively in ways that haven't been done before. Those, those are the kinds of, we want to have students come who, here who are excited by that, by, by that. And, and doing all of this in an environment where their testimonies grow, they um, feel like their aspiration to become a, a better person can can operate in a kind of synergistic relationship with their aspiration to do better in their career. So that yeah. that's that's the kind of thing we're hoping to do. Well, Dan, is there any other principal point to, that we haven't covered before I ask you our, our last question? You know, on, on a on a spiritual level, I, I I I think that there's there's models for what I've talked about. If in our LDS theology. God's kind of primary purpose is to develop us, sort of take us, and we're, we're really great raw materials in our theology. And then our earthly experience is meant to be focused on developing us and transforming us into something better as we as we bump into things and make mistakes, and then turn us into beings who are capable of leading and inspiring and doing good. That what I've just described about our earthly experience, and it's maybe a little bit hyperbolic, is, is exactly what we're sort of hoping to do in an MBA experience. We're hoping to let people expand and grow their wings and, and become the kinds of people who can go be, be, become the boss rather than uh, be a, a follower uh, in, in all their situations. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, I love that. That's really... Uh, inspiring. And, and, you know, those are the sort of the, like I said, MBA school only lasts for a few years and many lives, but uh, hopefully it, it's one of many transformational experiences, especially spiritually that they experience throughout their life. Right. Um, well, the last question I have for you, Dan, is um, if you were in front of a room full of MBA students or alumni and they just need some encouragement, what final encouragement would you give them? Um, one of the really fun privileges I've had that's resulted from being able to be, be in really great institutions. You know, so like one of my advisors at UC Berkeley won the Nobel Prize in economics a couple of years after I graduated and two professors there, I, I took econ classes from who, who won the Nobel Prize, like while I was at Berkeley. And then, you know, at Harvard, uh, you, you know, just go down the list of, you know, Michael Porter, or Kim Clark, or, you, you know, you name it, Clay Christensen, all, all these amazing folks that I was able to be around. And, and in my ward that we lived in in Belmont, there were these, you know, fantastically capable people. And and being able to be at Oxford, I've, you know, I kind of feel like Forrest Gump sometimes that I've been able to be around these these really remarkable people, and I'm just kind of a, you know, Joe Schmo. But but my observation, it would have been hard for me to grasp as an undergrad at BYU. And I think it's often hard for people to grasp if they're feeling kind of imposter syndrome about stuff. Is you know, I've been able to meet a bunch of like people that are running the biggest companies in the world, and I've been able to shake hands with you know, leaders of countries or, or, uh, you know, organizations in government. And they're just people like they, they, they're, some of them are, are really quite bright. Some of them are really bad with people. Some of them are really like more worried about their kids. Some are like less worried about their kids than they should be. Like they're people. And it turns out that, you know, the people we're, we think are, running the world and that we're hoping are going to run the world better are, are they're just you and me. And it's the people that I see in my MBA classrooms. And it's not like, you know, there's something genetically different 
about Jeff Bezos that makes him like a uber human and we just are all living in his world. He just, you know, he had a really great business idea. He worked his tail off, worked really, really hard, uh, you know, had some good fortune along the way, had some bad fortune along, made some bad decisions, made some good decisions. But fundamentally, he is each of us and we can, we can, we could do, we can do whatever we want to do. And you students in, in my MBA classroom or you prospective MBA students have the ability to go and, and do that stuff. And, and actually, if you go and do that with, with the values that we hope to be developing and propagating here at BYU, I, I actually I humbly suggest you might be able to do a better job than some of the, than, than the job some of those folks are doing right now. Thank you for listening to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our guests and visit latterdaysaintmba.com to find details about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society.